Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Samuel, chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So today we begin our new worship series, The Gospel According to Mr. Rogers. Fred Rogers was an ordained Presbyterian pastor, and he began filming Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood in February of 1968 because he was frustrated with children's programming at the time. He turned on the TV and all he saw were people throwing um, pies in each other's faces, and he thought that they could that we could do better than that. And so he wanted to do something about it. And in an interview with CNN, he said that he wanted to use television to nurture those who would watch and listen. And that's exactly what he did for two and a half decades and for 865 episodes. I remember watching Mr. Rogers when I went to my babysitters every day while she was getting lunch ready. And I remember the trolley and Daniel Tiger, Officer Clemens and Lady Aberlane, and they were some of my favorite characters. 
Fred Rogers used public television as a platform to speak life and truth to millions of viewers with a posture of peace and kindness and relentless gentleness. The television show was this pastor's ministry. And while he never preached a sermon on the air, he embodied the gospel of Jesus in every episode. And so for the next six weeks, we are going to take a look at the biblical themes and the lessons that he taught on his television, his television show and also exemplified in his life. Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, O Lord. Enable us to be receptive to your message this morning and challenge us to live more fully for you than we ever have before. Through the power of your spirit, we pray. Amen. Journalist Tom Genode wrote an article for Esquire about his friendship with Fred Rogers. And this friendship is what's the basis for the movie that came out in November, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, starring Tom Hanks as Mr. Rogers. Russ and I went to see the film, and I tell you what, it's a good movie. Um, it's one of our favorites now, I think. And, and through, because Russ watched the movie, he then had to research it and um, discovered that Tom Hanks and Fred Rogers were sixth cousins, which I think is kind of interesting. But in the article that Tom Genode wrote, he shares a time when doctors um, asked Fred Rogers to write a chapter for a book that they were writing to teach them how to talk to children. And because of Fred's schedule, he asked a, a woman who was very knowledgeable in child development to work on it. And in the article, Jeannot writes that the woman worked hard and she used all of her, her knowledge and her hard-earned experience in the field. But when she handed the draft to Fred Rogers, he took it and he crossed out the words of her educated introduction and replaced it with six words. You were a child once, too. These words are so simple, yet they can be so transformative. You were a child once, too. Fred Rogers was using these six words to tell the doctors to remember what it was like to be children, to be afraid and uncertain, to not understand exactly everything that was going on around you, and, and to be dependent on others to care for you. These words begin with compassion for children, but really these words can be applied to anyone. Remembering that someone, at, at some point, the person in front of you was a child, just like you were, and can have a profound effect on how you view that person. When we think of someone as a child, we're more easily able to see them at their essence. See them as God sees them. A child deserving not only compassion, but love and respect and understanding. What Fred Rogers taught those doctors and teaches us with this phrase is that the dignity of a person isn't dependent on anything else except the fact that they exist and they are created by God. They are of sacred worth. That's the most important thing. 
This phrase causes us to drill past all of those, those labels that we can put on people, the words that we use to divine, define people and to place them in neat little boxes in order to see then that a chi- what God sees, that that person is a child created by the author of life. In today's scripture, we see something similar. God sent Samuel to go and to find a new king for Israel, assuring him that that new king would be one of Jesse's sons. So Samuel leaves on what he thinks is a pretty straightforward assignment. And in fact, the first son that Samuel sees, he says to himself, well, that must be the Lord's anointed. But the Lord says to him, because nothing is ever straightforward with God, I don't think, have no regard for his appearance or stature, because I haven't selected him. God doesn't look at, the thi- at things like humans do. Humans see only what is visible to the eyes, but the Lord sees into the heart. So as Samuel goes down the line of Jesse's sons again and again and again, the Lord says, no, not this one, no, not this one, until Samuel has gone through all of them. And confused, Samuel asked Jesse, are you sure these are all of the sons that you have? And that's when Jesse admits, well, there's still the youngest one, but he's out with the sheep. As if to say, yeah, but he's not really worth considering. He's a, he's a shepherd. He can't possibly be who you're looking for. And the Hebrew word here that Jesse uses to describe his youngest son can be translated as runt. He wasn't just the youngest son, but he was the runt of the litter. And he tells Samuel, Jesse tells Samuel that David was the runt of a litter, the litter, a good boy, but he's a shepherd, and so he's just definitely not a contender for the king of God's kingdom. But after Samuel's urging, Jesse calls David in from the field to meet Samuel, and as soon as David arrives, the Lord says, that's the one. Anoint him. David would be the next king of Israel. Now, often the things that we see, the, a person's position or possessions, those are the things that we can, we can take as or we can mistake as indications for somebody's worth. David's brothers looked like potential kings to Saul. They were older and stronger and they had more experience. And David was the runt of the litter. He was thin and scrawny and, and he was off with the sheep and he was singing and he was known as a poet. Why would he be the chosen one? Most of the people had written David off. He didn't have any skills or aptitude needed to run a war-torn nation of people. But God, God didn't see all of that. He saw beyond it. God saw a completely different picture with David. God saw something deeper, a spiritual strength within him. And so he tells Samuel, God tells Samuel to take the oil and to anoint David, to pour the oil on top of David's head so that it it flowed down his face and into his eyes and all over him. So it covered him as, as a testimony of who David was, of David's identity as God's beloved 
and as Israel's king. Now, Fred Rogers, he didn't have oil to anoint people, but he poured a constant stream of affirmation and confirmation over his viewers and his guests and his cast because he saw beneath the surface of who he saw in front of him, and he saw what was sacred within each person. He saw them at their essence, a child of God worthy of compassion and grace and understanding. Because God looked inward at who David was as his heart, David went on to beat the giant Goliath, to be a fierce warrior and to become king of God's people. So what would happen if we looked at others not as we see them on the outside or even with the labels that we put on them, but look deeper to see what God sees? My friend Emily P. Freeman in in her podcast um, asked what would happen if we looked for the children, for the children that are hidden in in all of us. What would happen if we looked for the children and the person across the political aisle, especially in this climate, in this coming year? What would happen? What would happen if we looked for the child and the brother that you just can't seem to get along with? Or in the customer who refuses to bend to what you want them to do or are asking them to do? What would happen if you looked for the child and the partner that just will not see your way? or the person on the other side of the jail cell? What would happen if you saw the child in the eyes of your opponent, in the eyes of your teenager, or your spouse, or your boss, or even your Uber driver? A person's defining factor of their worthiness is not his or her attitudes or opinions or political affiliations or gender, or race, or even their words or their actions. Even if you disapprove, if we disapprove of the way somebody is acting or we disagree, even if a person is arrogant or annoying, even if a person does things differently than we do, they were a child once, too. Look for the child in the one who disagrees with you who offends you, who stands against you. You don't have to embrace them. You don't have to befriend them, and you don't necessarily have to trust them. But God invites you to see them as God does and regard them accordingly as a beloved child of God. We do not have to let hate win. And don't forget, too, to be to be kind to the child within you, because you were a child once, too. And you are God's child, too. This morning, we come to Christ's table, and we come together, and I don't know. To be honest, this morning, I am feeling anxious and overwhelmed by everything that is going on in the church and with Russ's grandfather and everything. But the honor that I have to come here this morning and to worship with you all and to come to this table to remember that we are all loved, to remember that no matter what happens, 
that this table is firm, that this foundation of Jesus is firm in our lives. No matter what happens, God will be there, and God has this. Because so long ago, Jesus in that upper room, knowing what was going to happen, he took the bread from his table, that simple, simple bread, and he gave thanks to God. And then he broke it, and he told his disciples, take and eat this, and do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup from his table, and after again giving thanks to God, he told his disciples, drink from this cup, each one of you, and do this in remembrance of me. This is the cup of my new covenant, given for you and for many for the forgiveness of your sins. Christ, on that cross, sacrificed himself so that we do not have to have pain. We don't have to live in worry. We don't have to live in, in this world, in the sin and, and the hatred of this world, but we get to live with him, grounded in love and grounded in each other. This table unites us, no matter what happens in the world. We come to God and we find wholeness and comfort and love. Thank you, God. Let's pray. Most holy Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit on these gifts of bread and juice and on us gathered here. Make these gifts be for us the body and the blood of Christ so that we might be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. God, we are thankful that we might come here, that we might be united with you and we might receive forgiveness for all of those things that separate us from you. Lord, make you, make you a, a priority, the priority in our lives. Lord, help us to focus fully on you and on you in each other, on the sacred worth of one another. Lord, let us come to this table as a child, as your child, your beloved child, so that we might be redeemed, so that we might go into the world and redeem this world with your spirit. We pray these things in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.